Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On March 15th, nine storytellers shared their stories with our audience for our virtual slam. The theme for our March Story Slam was Close Call. We heard stories about missing the bus, escaping death, and a run-in with a gang. In the end, our winner was first-time storyteller Helen Dempsey with her story about getting off course during a hash while living in France. So, it was 1993, and my family had moved to France for a sabbatical year to Po, which is a beautiful city in the southwest that has a panoramic view of the Pyrenees. It sounds idyllic, but it wasn't all good news. I had to leave a job I loved. My three daughters were going to have to attend French schools because Poe didn't have an international school. And none of us really spoke French. On the plus side though, because I've moved around so much in my adult years, one of my superpowers is knowing how to settle into a new place. Seriously, I lived in the Ozarks happily for five years. My MO involves finding just the right person who will help me connect. And so as I was dropping my kids off on the first day of school, when I saw a woman wearing jeans and sneakers heading straight towards me, I had a very good feeling. It turned out I was about to cross paths with Penny Engwall, an expat from Scotland and connector extraordinaire. Penny introduced herself and welcomed me to town. She asked me over for a cup of tea and gave me a gazillion tips about how to live in France. And she invited me to attend an event she called a hash. I know it sounds like something that has to do with illegal drugs, but it's not. Hash house harriers are groups of runners all over the world who describe themselves as drinkers with a running problem. Their beverage of choice is beer, both for drinking and for pouring over their heads at the end of the hash. And here's how it all works. The organizer of the hash is known as the hare, and that person sets a trail, usually in the woods, using white flour. The rest of the group, which they're known as the hounds, they run the course, giving each other directions by yelling things like false trail and on on. Well, the Sunday after I met Penny, we, my family drove up to the site of the hash where we found this beautiful setting. It was an ancient church that was bordered by woods on one side and a large rolling empty field on the other. The Pohash was family friendly and someone would always lead a group of walkers on an unmarked alternate trail. While my daughter, my oldest daughter ran the hash with her dad, my two younger daughters and I set off with a few other walkers led by Reuben, who was the hare who had set the hash that day. It was the first time I met Ruben, who told me he had been setting, he had been organizing hashes for years. The plan was for us to meet up with the rest of the runners at the end of our leisurely stroll back at the church. After a while, though, it seemed like we were walking and walking with no end in sight and alarm bells started to go off in my head. Since I have a terrible sense of direction, I've come to recognize when I'm lost, but I told myself, Reuben had set the hash, he knew the area, 
he had to know how to get us back to the church. Well, it turns out that Harriers are given nicknames based on some quirky trait. And it wasn't until much later that I learned his nickname was Wrongway Reuben. I, I just wish I had known that before I followed him blindly into the woods with two of my babies. Well, after what seemed like forever, we saw the empty field off in the distance and we moved as fast as we could in that direction. When we got to the fence, Reuben said in a very confident voice, we just need to walk through the field and we'll be back at the church. And so even after all the aimless wandering, since no one had a better plan and we hadn't learned the whole wrong way Reuben thing yet, we followed him like sheep. We all, each one of us climbed carefully through the wire fence into the field and headed towards the spire of the church that was like barely visible through the trees. And then all at once, everyone realized that the field wasn't completely empty. There was a gigantic enraged bull snorting and pawing the ground. A bull who, at least in my mind, was this close to charging us. And the bull wasn't, the bull wasn't alone. There was also an enraged farmer who was waving a pitchfork and yelling God knows what at us in really angry French. Now, Google says when you are faced with an angry bull, you should walk calmly and not make any sudden movements so as not to piss the bull off even more. But unfortunately in 1993, we didn't have Google. So every single one of us without looking back ran towards the church like bats out of hell. Miraculously, and I still don't know how this happened, we all made it back to the church safe and sound. Now, I'm normally not a beer drinker, but after that very close call, I downed several Amstels at breakneck speed. Well, we continued attending the hashes until we left France the next year. And during that time, no one was irretrievably lost or gored by a bull. And unexpectedly, we became kind of friends with Ruben who turned out to be a fun guy to hang out with. I just made sure never to follow him anywhere ever ever again. Helen earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up, we have David Smith, who shared about his history as an unlucky person and how his luck changed after receiving a leukemia diagnosis. I'm not lucky in the conventional sense. Um, I realize that I'm a middle-class white guy born at the height of the great American empire, so I realize I'm fortunate in that regard, but if it has anything to do with chance, a dice roll, a card deal, a name out of a hat, anything like that, I will lose. Count on it. I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons very early because I got tired of dying in the first 10 minutes on a roll of a 20-sided die and sitting there watching everybody else play. So it, it was so bad and so reliable that I literally gave up any kind of game of chance by the time I was 30. If I bought raffle tickets, it was because I was donating to the charity, not because I expected to win the TV. And then in 2009, I found out why I was so unlucky. That whole year, I felt awful. Not in any 
kind of way I could locate. Not sick, just tired, you know, winded, climbing steps, just exhausted all the time. And my wife convinced me to go to the doctor and he sent me for some tests. And a month or two went by and I didn't hear back. And eventually I called the doctor and he said they'd screwed up the tests and I needed to go back. I ended up taking these tests three more times. And each time the doctor told me that they screwed up the tests. So now I'm thinking he's getting paid per test. So I ask him, when you say that the tests are screwed up, what do you mean by that? He says, well, let me put it this way. If these were your actual blood counts, you'd be dead. So he tells me to take another round of tests. But just in case, he says, if you, you know, if you start bleeding uncontrollably, go right to the ER, which was pretty unnecessary since my default plan whenever I bleed uncontrollably is to go to the ER. And wouldn't you know it, the very next day, I get a nosebleed that will not stop. And I end up in the ER and they run more tests. But this time they say, oh, we're keeping you here. Turns out all of the tests I've had over those months were right. I was almost dead. It was a pretty rare type of leukemia. And when I found out, I, I did what everybody else does and what people should be very careful doing. I Googled it. Now, it turns out about 80% of what's on the internet about cancer is bullshit. And from what I can find out about my particular form of leukemia is that there's the only treatment for it is essentially put your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. Um, one of the articles on the internet basically actually said, get your affairs in order. Now, the hospital where I was diagnosed is a small one, and they tell me they need to send me to a bigger place for treatment. So they put me in an ambulance, and they tell the driver to just start driving south towards Center City, Philadelphia, and they will call with the destination. See, it's really busy, and whatever hospital has the first open bed, that's where I'm going. Now, here's what I didn't know at the time. Like many people, I was under the impression that if one hospital has a treatment for a disease, they all have it. That's apparently not true. Now in Philly, the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania, world-class hospital, top 10 in the country, they've been specializing in blood cancers forever. The gene that causes leukemia is called the Philadelphia gene because it was discovered at Penn. Penn, had a treatment for my form of leukemia. The other hospital I was headed toward, less than a mile away from Penn, also world-class hospital, top 50 nationwide, excellent heart and ortho and surgery, no treatment for my form of leukemia. Now it's a snowy day in December in Philadelphia, and I'm in an ambulance headed for one of those hospitals. Now the ambulance crew are big guys, but they're fat, they're not fit. They have no problem pushing the gurney around, but I realized that if I fell down, they wouldn't be able to bend over to pick me up. 
And on top of that, I smelled weed. And we're driving on slippery streets and they're, they're having a ball sliding through intersections. Lots of near misses. And I'm in the back watching these giant oxygen bottles roll around on the floor of this ambulance. Every time we stop, these big tanks roll forward, hit the wall. And when we accelerate, they roll back. You know what an oxygen bottle really is? It's a bomb waiting to go off. If it explodes, it has the force of a whole bunch of dynamite and the tank becomes razor sharp shrapnel. And it happens more than you might think. Um, and it doesn't need to explode. If the valve breaks off, it essentially becomes a torpedo with enough force to punch through the engine block and into a house down the block. Can you tell my brother worked with compressed gases for many years? I've heard all the stories. Anyway, I'm watching these things roll around on the floor while the fat boys, you know, slide through in Philadelphia intersections. And a kind of peace came over me. Because I realized I was going to die on the way to the hospital. And then the call came in to take me to Penn. I survived the trip to Satan's in Satan's own ambulance. And I made it to Penn. They successfully treated me for leukemia. And yes, I will use the word cured. They cured me. And it wasn't until later that I found out that the other hospital had no treatment. And then it all made sense. All of my losing, all of my life was for a reason. I had been unlucky, statistically unlucky, in defiance of all the odds. But in some great cosmic scheme, I had been saving up all my luck for one roll of the dice, and I won. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from another first-time storyteller, Amos Stoltzfus. Amos told us a story about the time his dog was attacked at the dog park. Uh, it's a typically overcast June day in Oakland, California. And like too many other Saturday mornings, I'm a little hungover. And I'm walking my dog Zebediah, Zeb for short, to our local dog park. Zeb is a 60-pound Rottweiler Sharpay mix. He has the long, round snout of a Sharpay with a bunch of extra skin on his face and especially around his neck. But he has the markings of a Rottweiler, which makes him look intimidating. But Zeb is a lover, not a fighter. And he's always loved going to dog parks. <clears throat> on our way to the park, uh, we stopped by uh, my favorite coffee shop for a much needed dose of caffeine. And as we get closer to the park, the fog in my head is starting to lift. Uh, and I'm glad to see that there are already two other dogs there. Zeb will have a couple of playmates as I come back to life. The other dogs see us approaching and they run and jump at the fence as excited to see Zeb as he is to see them. I take off Zeb's leash and open the gate and he happily runs to the other dogs. But as I turn to close the gate, I hear him yelp in pain. So I slam the gate closed and I drop my coffee cup and I run over to him. And Zeb is pinned on the ground and one of the other dogs is on top of him and it's trying to lock its jaw around his neck. And I can see the terror 
in Zeb's eyes as he struggles to get his feet under him. I'm now fully alert and the adrenaline is pumping. The other dog's owner joins me as I pull and scream and kick and try to pry her dog off of Zeb. And after what felt like an eternity, but was probably only a few seconds, we managed to separate the two dogs. But as I'm trying to get Zeb out of the dog park, the other dog pounces on him again. And again, we kick and scream and we're able to pry its jaw off of Zeb's neck. And this time I put my body in between Zeb and the other dog and I push him out of the park. And once we're safely outside, I look down to assess the damage. And Zeb is lucid and he's not bleeding a lot, but his scalp is ripped from ear to ear. I can see his skull and there's all this extra skin or this loose skin hanging from his head. And I know I have to get him to a vet as soon as possible, but I'm seven blocks from my house and Zeb is too big for me to carry him. So I yell at the other dog owner and I give her my phone number and I tell her that I'm gonna take him to the pet emergency in Berkeley. And I tell her that she has to call me. And Zeb and I run and we make it back to my place and I grab my truck keys and we jump in the truck and I'm running red lights all the way up to Berkeley. And we get to the pet emergency and I rush him inside and the woman at the front desk, he's right there, so this kind of gives away the end of the story. Uh, the woman at the front desk uh, takes one look at him and uh, takes him to the back. And then the adrenaline calms down and my emotions kick in. And I can't fill out the intake form because my hand won't stop shaking. And I'm sitting there in the waiting room and I'm thinking about Zeb. And I'm thinking about the nine years that we've spent together. And I'm thinking about how he has seen me through a really rough divorce, two big moves, and a lot of bad decisions. And I'm thinking about all the good times we've had, all those hikes and camping trips and long runs. And I'm wondering if this is how it ends. And as I'm sitting there, the other dog's owner walks in and she's shaking and she's crying and she's telling me how sorry she is that this happened. And I give her a hug and she gives the clinic her credit card and she tells them to charge whatever it'll take. About an hour later, the vet comes out and she tells me that Zeb is lucky, that all of that extra skin around his neck probably saved his life. And she's confident that they'll be able to stitch up his head and that he'll fully recover. And I'm able to take him home later that day. A few months later on Zeb's 10th birthday, I throw him a big party and I invite a bunch of my friends and I invite Summer, the other dog owner. And when she shows up, Zeb greets her like he does all my friends, tail wagging, butt wiggling, the biggest smile on his face. And we raise our glasses and I say a toast to Zeb, grateful that he's still here with us and grateful that he's still a lover and not a fighter. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. 
will host our first in-person story slam since the before times on Tuesday, April 19th in our new location. Updates on our events and tickets for purchase are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at York Story Slam, as well as on Facebook, and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. We hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Catherine Roquet. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson.